0: Hello and welcome to The Gateway Presents on CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official campus media source run by students for students. Every two weeks we cover news, opinion, and arts and culture related topics that are pertinent to students and to campus. Thanks for tuning in. We're starting off with our news segment, enjoy.
1: news of the week and the stories that we're working on. Uh, first off, we have Adam. Um, can you start us off by talking about some of the stories you are working on this week and what's going on in terms of campus news?
2: For sure. So the first story I'm working on is uh, that there is a new U-Sports policy. This was released on September 27th. And basically U-Sports is the governing body that oversees all athletic uh, competitions and guidelines for universities across Canada, and these inclu- and this includes the University of Alberta. And so this new policy uh, includes transgender students uh, to compete at university-level competitions within the country. And so transgender athletes can choose to compete in sports that correspond to their sex at birth or to their gender identity. And so this new policy... Uh, according to David Goldstein, uh, the chief operating officer of U-Sports, is better uh, than the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the equivalent of U-Sports in the United States, uh, transgender policy that has been uh, in effect since 2013. Um, And Goldstein says that this policy is better um, because it allows transgender students uh, to compete in Canada without having to go through um, hormone therapy. And so according to Goldstein, um, Sports believes that there isn't enough scientific evidence for the necessity of this treatment. And so uh, he has told me in an interview that um, there's no sense in having this as a requirement like the National Collegiate Athletic Association or the NCAA uh, has. And so Sports will not have it. And he hopes that this will... Uh, encourage more transgender athletes to participate. Okay,
1: so the effect of this policy is that a transgender male student can now play in a male team, correct?
2: Yeah. So if that transgender student uh, identifies as male, they can play for that team. Or uh, if they identify as female, they can okay. play. Okay. Um, did you? Did Goldstein say why this policy came about um, at this yeah. particular time? So basically. Uh, Youth Sports has an equity committee, and it's made up of athletic staff uh, from universities across the country. And so they'd been hearing in the past that they needed a policy to include transgender athletes in Canada. And of course, uh, the NCAA has already had a policy in place for quite some time. And so um, Goldstein wanted to make sure that there's a Canadian uh, equivalent. And that no athletes are turned away just because of their individuality. Okay,
1: and as you mentioned, Goldstein said that the big difference between the NCAA's policy and the U Sports policy is that um, one requires hormone therapy, whereas the other one doesn't, right?
2: Exactly. So that, it, uh, according to him, that's the biggest difference, and it's something that he hopes will include more students because uh, not only is hormone therapy expensive, but it's also very invasive. Okay. Anything else on that one? Yeah, so um, I spoke with a University of Alberta coach, Howie Draper, who is the head coach of the Pandas women's hockey team. And he said he was very supportive of the new policy and really excited to see what will uh, happen at the University of Alberta. Uh, He has said that right now there's no official policy or directions or directives at the University of Alberta. However, Those conversations will be ongoing so that any University of Alberta student who wants to participate in athletics who is transgender can. Okay, so the response um, from
1: U of A Athletics in response to this policy has been generally positive.
2: Very positive. They're very excited. And according to Draper, the dialogues between the different teams and athletic administration will be happening. And that... Uh, overall as an administration they're incredibly excited at the prospect of ensuring that everyone who wants to play can. Cool. Awesome. Um what's another story
1: you're working on this week?
2: Yeah, so uh <clears throat> this week cannabis was legalized and so this mm-hmm. has meant that the University of Alberta has had to implement its own policy uh because it is a private uh property here in the uh here in the city of Edmonton rather mm-hmm. and so basically Uh, the university has adopted a policy stance where cannabis use is only authorized and legal in certain areas. And so these are four locations, three of which are close to residences. And so the four areas are uh, behind Lister Centre, behind the east part of Nipsey House, and outside the northwest corner of Sub, and outside of Rutherford North Library, specifically on the northwest side. So cannabis smoking and vaping are only permitted within those areas and nowhere else on campus. What's interesting to note as well is that this is only for North Campus, but Augustana and Campus Saint-Jean are still evaluating whether cannabis can be used. Right now the policy says that there should be no cannabis use, including on university property and residences. But both satellite campuses have said that they will be developing their own policies soon. Okay. And you mentioned Nipsey House. Nipsey House
1: is the new um, East Campus Village residence that was only completed this September, correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So how long has this policy been in the works for?
2: So I'm not quite sure when this first started. However, I do know that General Faculty's Council assembled a cannabis working group that really worked hard over the summer to ensure uh, that consultation done uh, was done with students, faculty, and staff so that everyone who wanted to use cannabis would be able to do so on university property, but also to not infringe upon uh, the rights of those who don't want to smoke cannabis. So it's been... Uh, I spoke with uh, Andrew Leach, who is the... Um, a director of risk management services on campus here at the University of Alberta, who said that it's been a very precarious and difficult balance to reach, but he's hoping that these cannabis smoking zones here at North Campus will really ensure that everyone who wants to smoke will be able to do so, but the discrimination for those who don't want to maybe feel the effects of secondhand smoke will not uh, will be mitigated as well.
1: Okay, so concerns from the community about secondhand smoke and like the, like... Just substance abuse, or like, um, for sure, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, the school of public health has come out of, of very much against cannabis, and so uh, trying to balance both of those perspectives has been the key challenge for uh, for uh, Andrew Leach. Okay,
1: we're talking about Andrew LeitcH, not yes, L-E-A-C-H, that is correct. More yes, well known. all right. Just to clarify, so this cannabis policy working group essentially spent several months consulting or doing survey work and consulting with the community and what they came up with essentially is um, this policy that was rather liberal and letting allowing some cannabis use on campus and especially in those spots correct
2: yes that's yeah. that's correct
1: and the other thing too is that um, of course other universities in, Can- in Canada have to happen devising their own policies uh, in terms of cannabis use on pro- their properties. Um, how does the U of A's compare to other universities?
2: For sure. So it's actually quite interesting because the University of Alberta, like you said, has developed a very liberal policy. There's only one university in Canada that uh, has legalized cannabis use everywhere on campus as if it was like tobacco, and that's University of British Columbia or UBC. Uh, And UBC has also implemented no smoking zones. So there's specific areas where you cannot smoke cannabis, but other than that, you're able to smoke cannabis just as if it was tobacco, which is really interesting. But the majority of post-secondary institutions in Canada have actually just outright banned cannabis use. Uh, And this includes the University of Toronto, University of Calgary, and a lot of the maritime institutions as well. And so it's interesting to see that the U of A is kind of alone in how it's uh implementing this policy and i'm pretty um i'm pretty interested to see if if canadian institutions that have outright banned it will continue to go down that route or if in a year or so they'll reevaluate their policy and implement something like either ubc or or the u of a's policy okay and then
1: i guess the other thing too is that um three of these four zones that have been designated on North Campus are nearby um, student residences. Um, And that's also because the rules prohibit um, cannabis use within residences, correct?
2: That's correct, yeah. So the one by Rutherford is very close to Hub, and the one by Lister is obviously very close to Lister, and then Nipsey House encompasses East Campus Village. So obviously... It's very important for the university, according to Leach, that uh, the interests of those residents who do want to smoke are protected. Um, just because they're living, living on a university residence, he said that it shouldn't um, discriminate against their use of cannabis. And uh, another thing to note is that you will not be able to grow cannabis inside a university residence or anywhere on the university unless it's an approved research project. And uh, I'm not sure if those guidelines have come out as to how to approve a research project yet. Mm. Um, But I'm sure that uh, more policies are in the works around that. Yeah. Well, I guess with
1: legalization, you might see like a research project related to cannabis. Exactly.
2: Especially the School of Public Health, because Mm. uh, they have also been coming out and saying that there is a lack of study around cannabis and its effects. And so I'm sure that now that it has been legalized, that stigma of studying cannabis might be taken away
3: Alright,
1: cool, thanks so much
2: Yeah, no problem
1: Uh, Now on to Calvin, Calvin's our editor-staff reporter this year Uh, Tell us what's the stories you're working on
4: So, in terms of institutional news we have the Council of Alberta University Students, or COSS launching an information campaign this week to urge the provincial government to release their tuition review this fall Okay, Um, so this has to do with the tuition review, right? Yes. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that policy? So when the new Democratic Party was elected, they promised to do a thorough uh, review of the Alberta post-secondary institution tuition. And so it was the review was supposed to address policies on both domestic as well as international student tuition. And it was expected to be released in the fall of 2017, but it didn't. And so the delay has, of of course, uh, caused concerns for a number of student advocates, um, particularly this year because the domestic student tuition freeze is ending after this academic year. And so if the uh, tuition review is not released, there's concerns that the domestic student tuition may um, go up significantly for the next academic year. Okay. So what is the goal of this campaign? So the campaign is organized by the Council of Alberta University Students, or COS. And so the COS is actually an advocate group that's composed of the five different largest uh, post-secondary institutions here in Alberta. So the U of A is one of them. And what they're doing is they're trying to get students... um, Involved, so they're trying to educate students about the upcoming tuition review and encourage them to engage with the Alberta uh, Ministry of Advanced Education through, you know, social media by writing letters or emails to pressure the government into releasing the tuition review uh, this year. And then I believe in September,
1: the Minister of Advanced Education, Merlin Schmidt, uh, did say that
4: he expects the review to be tabled um, by this fall. Correct? Yes. Um, and. I believe uh, Rachel Notley also promised that as well. It's thought that hopefully the review will be tabled and legislated sometime in November or December. Yeah. Um, just to go over again why this review is important. So this review essentially controls how universities can sort of set tuition levels, correct? Right, right. So it's supposed to address both domestic as well as international student tuition levels. And so international student t- tuition has remained unregulated for quite some time Um so yeah, the review was supposed to deal to with, with these these two issues.
1: Yeah, and then as we saw, we ran into like budget issues last year when the university approved its budget, I believe, sometime this March, um, where uh, they they had to essentially they were allowed to increase um, international tuition by three point one four percent according to um, inflation, and then they couldn't do anything about um, domestic tuition because that was frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they set. Deficit, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So this will essentially determine what kind of um, uh, financial levers the university has at
4: their disposal. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. And you spoke with Adam Brown, I believe, for, about this campaign. Yes. So Adam Brown is the University of Alberta Students Union uh, Vice President External. He's also a member of the Costs Board of Directors. Yeah. And what is his hope for? Um, the legislation coming forward um he's hoping it will be uh tabled and legislated this year um of course he's concerned that if it isn't uh domestic student tuition can go up next year and um like you mentioned earlier with the international student tuition that did go up this year and of course there was a lot of controversy surrounding that students protested um But there was very little students could actually do to actually influence whether or not tuition can go up. And so the legislation is one of the ways um, government can sort of control this. And Brown, of course, wants students involved as much as possible. All right. Cool. Um, What's another story you worked on um, this week? So um, in lighter news, in science news, we have um, research coming out from the University of Alberta as well as the Stony Brook University, um, looking at the two Martian moons, so Phobos and Deimos, and their research suggests that the two moons may have actually originally been a part of Mars itself. And this this piece of research contradicts a long-held theory that the Martian moons were actually asteroids that were captured by the planet's gravitational pull.
1: Okay, so uh, the initial theory I guess was that these were just inner celestial bodies that were captured in Mars's gravitational orbit
4: yeah, so they they thought that way because um the the, the shape of the moons themselves the moons are are heavily dented so they resemble asteroids in that in that way one of the moons also um rotates around Mars in the opposite direction of Mars's natural spin. So it's suggested that these two bodies were likely asteroids that were captured by Mars. And um, it's been thought that way for a very long time, so this piece of research actually suggests that it isn't the case. And so the other dominant theory within the field is that perhaps um, these two moons may have been part of Mars itself. So at some point very early during the formation of Mars, Um, some sort of object must have hit Mars, and then a large portion of Mars came off, and then eventually coalesced into these two moons. And this is actually um, quite similar to what we think is happening with our own moon, because our own moon is also thought to have been um, formed after a collision event between Earth and some other celestial body. A portion of Earth came off, and then that formed our own moon. Okay. Okay. Cool. And um, who was the researcher who did this um, work? So the work is done um, with, it's, it's a collaboration between a couple groups. And so part of it involved um, the University of Alberta's astrogeologist, uh, Professor Chris Hurd, who co-authored the study. Um, he provided one of the uh, samples that was analyzed, the Tagish Lake meteorite. So this meteorite is known to be from the asteroid belt. So it's a... Uh, It's known to be an asteroid, and so they compared this known asteroid to the two moons to see whether or not they were similar. If indeed the moons were originally asteroids, then they should be similar to this other asteroid sample that we have here on Earth. And because they were different when they analyzed it, that suggests that the moons are likely not asteroids. And that there were part of Mars that were broken off due to some sort of um, collision. Yeah, so that's the other theory. But um, when I spoke with with dr chris heard what he said was that um to actually test whether or not this theory is true whether or not these two moons were originally part of mars they'll have to actually obtain a portion of these moons um bring it back to earth and actually analyze that and so we don't have pieces of these two moons yet um that will have to come hopefully in the future okay that's cool
1: Um, So it's not rewriting it just yet, but it's a possible
4: theory that can be proven in the future. Yeah, so it's more so disproving the existing theory, and so instead now the arrow points in the other direction. And so, again, a lot more evidence needs to be be found before we can determine whether or not this other theory is true. Cool. All right. Thanks so much. No problem.
0: That was The Gateway Presents' news segment. You're listening to CJSRFM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, we have our opinion segment.
5: Hi, I'm Andrew McQuinney. I'm the opinion editor here at The Gateway, the official student media source of the U of A. For today's opinion segment, I spoke with Atar Vora, one of our writers. Addy is a third year computing science student who likes to write and code indie games in his spare time. He wrote an article back in May called Trump's Disruption of American Politics Not a Bad Thing. In his article, Addy compares disruption in the tech industry, using the example of line, bike Spin, and Bird in San Francisco, to Donald Trump's presidency. Using disruption as a metaphor for the shaking of the status quo, Addy goes on to describe how Trump has disrupted American politics. Hey, guys. Welcome to the program today. So, Addy, I just wanted to ask you just a couple questions starting off. Um, what was your inspiration kind of behind writing this article in the first place?
6: Well, uh, Trump had been making the news as he has been for a while now. And another thing that hit the news, since I'm a techie, I follow this stuff, is the incident with Lyme and everything in San Francisco around the transportation disruption scene. And I felt like it'd be really interesting to look at parallels between politics and tech. And then uh, I dug a little bit deeper. I tried to compare the incidents and the values that followed the incidents and what kind of commonality I could draw from the two kind of scenarios.
5: So going into that disruption, as you said, again, is that kind of central metaphor term that you're working with uh, in examining both those cases. So. Do you kind of want to go through what disruption means and kind of like what it means in the tech world and how you would apply it to politics in this case?
6: Absolutely. And this is actually a really key point. Like, what is disruption? Uh, It's a word that's been thrown around recently a lot, and people have a lot of misconceptions about it. So let's tackle that first. Um, Disruption, uh, as it's used in its most generic form, refers to like shaking up the status quo, essentially. However, and you can apply this definition in various ways in many contexts, when you're speaking about a certain context, the definition needs to be a lot more specialized. For example, Tony Robbins, uh, the famous businessman and investor, talked a lot about disruption in business. And disruption, by the way, has been around since 1995, 1997. So it's been a word that's only seen like a resurgence of a sort in the last like three, four years. So disruption is of different specialization categories. Uh, In business, to quote Tony Robbins, it's really talking about... Uh, disruptive innovation in the sense that you're talking about disturbance in business models. And this is true of startups as well. It's like you're challenging business models that already exist. So for example, I wouldn't necessarily call Uber disruptive. However, when Uber came onto the scene, the business of taxi driving took a very different turn uh, and it was shaken from the ground up. And now it's almost become a normality to call an Uber. So disruption in that context and context is king, refers to the disruption and the shaking up of the business models that you're dealing with. Disruption in something like biology, for example, is a lot more different where challenging a base assumption in logic or an assumption in a theory. And if you've taken any logic course at all, you would know that assumptions are really important when you're proving something. So challenging those assumptions is key in, in more academic fields. And disrupting that is a ways to get to a different result. And now we come to politics, and this is uh, taking a little bit of a deep dive into this. Disruption in politics is a lot more different. You're challenging, again, shaking up status quo. However, you're challenging an existing system from at, a very, at a very core level, challenging values and challenging the way things have been done in tradition.
5: Another thing, as far as disruption is concerned, I know again there's that again, like Tony Robbins, very academic kind of discussion Oh, let I me mean, not say academic, but that discussion of disruption of business models, um, and kind of shaking things in the status quo. I know kind of another movement. I think the disruption kind of signals is kind of a movement from like fringe into mainstream, kind of like an anticipation of what's to come and being like something being positioned in a way that it is may not seem at the time that it should be taken seriously, but later on, it kind of comes back to bite people, maybe. I think you can see that a lot in maybe some people's political tactics, for example, uh, moving. I think, as you point out, I think Wiley Trump is kind of um, this character who nobody did really take seriously when he started onto uh, the political scene. So yeah, I think it's kind of a useful metaphor that way. Is that something you kind of thought of as well when you were writing?
6: Mm-hmm. hundred percent. That's definitely the approach that I took towards this. It was, the idea was to create parallels between the kinds of disruption we're seeing and trying to find that common link that disruption shares amongst these different branches. So I don't consider myself to be a pessimist. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and say that I tried to look. Disruption is very risky. And so finding value in disruption is something that you have to really search for. And that's kind of the point of this article. It's to search for possibly the positive light of Trump's candidacy and his role as president and what he can take away from his presidency and in turn build on that.
5: Yeah, I think that's something, at least I noticed in some responses to the article, that may have gotten lost in translation. I know critical reception to this article wasn't super fantastic. A lot of people were kind of like <laughs> not in a bad way, and I mean that's what oh, right I yeah. to oppose. Like, it is hard, I would I would say, to um see good things in Trump's presidency considering some of the egregious things that he's brought to light, some of the egregious things that he said, maybe some quote unquote, of the maybe idiotic things. I think someone characterized Mm -hmm. things that he said. (laughs) Yeah. So would you say when you're looking for positives, perhaps, in this kind of like Trump presidency, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's hunky-dory with Trump's presidency, right?
6: Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, No, Trump's presidency is definitely something that I feel very strongly about uh, and not in the best light. However, I do feel strongly about disruption as well. Okay, so as someone who likes to know their words, Uh, Whenever I see people tossing out the word disruption here and there, it's like, okay, you probably don't know what this actually means. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So, And then I I, I like to challenge people and make them understand what exactly disruption disruption is referring to. Uh, In the case of Trump's presidency, he has taken years of tradition, years of building up this great America that people so-called have had. And America is better than it has been before. Like, before Trump came into the picture. But I would say that in Obama's presidency, there, there were definitely some really good takeaways for America. And that has been built upon by the presidents that came before him and then Obama himself. So let me, let me create an analogy here. It's like building Lego blocks, right? And then all the presidents have been building Lego blocks. Different shapes of Lego blocks, but they're all on top of each other. And then Trump comes over, snags Lego block from somewhere in between, and then puts it on a different pile. That's what Trump did with his presidency, in my opinion, right? He's setting a different route, and he's disrupting the way we've approached values in politics. And he's changed the way we're looking at values completely in American systems.
5: So when you mean kind of in that Lego block analogy, where Trump is kind of taking maybe from this building that other presidents have built on before um, and taking Lego blocks, is moving it somewhere else and making people rethink their values. How do you think it's making people rethink maybe American values or kind of like how they see America as a state? Well,
6: obviously, this has had some polarizing, extremely polarizing responses, right? On one side, you have the people on the far who associate themselves with the far right, obviously solidifying their beliefs like, oh, yeah, Trump is great or like, oh, yeah, America is great because we have great gun laws or whatever. And their beliefs have been magnified or have been amplified to a certain extent. And then on the other side, you have more left associating people understanding that there is so much more wrong with the way America has been and the way it is now. So Trump has kind of like shed a light in his course of disruption to make the left realize and to bring them to kind of like rise up in a way and understand that there is so much wrong. And there's so much that should be corrected. And that is how the different responses to Trump's presidency has essentially been in terms of disruption.
5: Yeah. And I think you can see this in a lot of the resurging kind of democratic movements that have been happening with the elections in New York, for example, right. and a lot of these uh, new democratic challengers who are rising up against established Republican incumbents who've been uh, serving for like many, many terms, right? Right. So probably that's an example that we see kind of growing out of that kind of disruption. So those are the kind of things you're kind of focusing on.
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That is definitely... Um, is <laughs> the, the, the end goal <laughs> or the end game. <laughs> that? Yeah.
5: Has your opinion changed maybe a little bit at all when it kind of comes since the writing of the article, maybe just like in terms of disruption as a useful metaphor at all, or do you still kind of hold fast to uh, the idea of disruption?
6: I still hold fast to it, 100%. And what really solidified that for me was the recent Kavanaugh case. First of all, it was so brave and so amazing of her to come and speak up. And after all of that, He is now the Supreme Judge. So, (laughs) I mean, you have to question, like, something very ethically base to understand where Trump's presidency is leading America. And that is a disruptive thought at its core because disruption is challenging status quo, challenging the base assumptions. If Americans have always believed in certain values, they are... Undeniably, somewhere in their unconscious or conscious thought, having a debate about it. And that's what, that's what I think. That's what I believe. Because there is no way a human who is knowledgeable enough would observe his surroundings or their surroundings and this course and then not have thoughts about it and not have conflicting opinions about it.
5: I kind of want to come back to the Lego brick metaphor, the kind of tower metaphor. So you described this kind of, I would use the word teleological, this kind of like linear Mm -hmm. upwards build Mm -hmm. that presidents have been building and adding Lego bricks to each other. And Trump's come and taken something from somewhere in the middle and they just moved it to another pile. I think some may challenge just that model as some presidents may be. Have come um, in taking Lego bricks off completely. They have built like down the tower or taken things off of the tower instead of moving them. Or perhaps they've maybe taken a brick off, moved it to like another side of that same tower instead of moving mm-hmm. to a completely different tower. Do you think that's kind of something to be taken into consideration with that kind of model? Like, what's the difference between maybe a president who's just simply removing a brick versus a destructive model where somebody's taking a brick and moving it somewhere else?
6: Right. So that's a great question. I think that. One way I'm going to start that off is by saying that the model is obviously something I just made up right Mm -hmm. here. It's not definitely something that works in the most academic sense. But what it does do is analyze like the trend we've seen with the president so far, right? And surely, I think I could argue that with these Lego blocks stacking on top of each other, what it's helped do is create a more solidified identity for Americans. And American spirit or what you call American spirit and identity is something that has been increasing regardless. People say that you know America is more diverse or like more broken down than ever before. I would just say that you've never seen a unification of this scale before. Have you ever seen so many people come together in support on Twitter or, for, or in a social media platform for that example? against the president anyway that's a side that's a side thought but to come back to your point it's like yeah what's happening is that what trump's doing is taking that block from between and then putting it in a different pile but that pile of his you have to understand is like beneath the ground it's something else Trump is a businessman. He's not a politically trained necessarily. I mean, I'm sure some, he's encountered politics in his rise to the top. But at his very core, he's a businessman. He thinks like a businessman. And because of that thought process, the pile that he is, he is essentially starting to build up for himself is, is based on different moral values. <laughs> like presidents that have come in, I'm sure probably they've been voted into power, have captured the hearts of Americans and the Americans' values. And that's what they've appealed to. That's what they've got. They're respected, right? Trump, on the other hand, has been able to charm people by his ability to do things as a businessman. And you can see that in all the promises he's tried to make in his candidacy run, right? And that is disruptive because suddenly you're taking this very core fundamental value that some president somewhere online has put on the Lego stack, and then you're shifting it to a different pile, and you're building, which is already on top of something else, and then you continue to build on that. So it's a different line of thought, and it's, it's, a, it's a line of thought that questions something extremely, extremely fundamental, and that is disruption, and that is what Trump has done.
5: So yeah, with Trump's disruption, do you think that Americans would have come together to maybe recognize some of the systemic issues that they've been facing without a Trump presidency? Do you think had we elected uh, another Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton in place of Trump, would Americans have come to the same kind of like conclusions, had seen the same kind of visibility put on some of the systemic issues that they've seen? That's
6: a good question. And I think that that branches off in two very extreme paths. So on one side, you have the people who are... And I would say that Trump's presidency, and this is the point of my article as well, is to say that his presidency has banded people together in ways never before. Uh, and his presidency has brought to light some of the ethical and moral fundamentals of American values, right? And yeah, it's like, so not... There are two extreme paths. And these extreme paths also converge like after a while. But the extreme paths are the people who are like... This is what I've written in my article. I'm just going to quote it off of here because like, I think I, I really like this line. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to criticize Trump for being a tra- terrible ter- 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 president. But it's also easy to ignore the trail of potential left behind in such a man's weight. Like a leprechaun dropping gold coins from his pocket as he prances over the rainbow towards a spot of gold. Now to put that into context of what's happening right now, you can easily see the people who are enraged by this, right? And a lot of people are. He has a what I would like call a criminal record. And no president has ever really ignored that <laughs> to the extent that Trump has, and Kumley diverged thought from that, right? Trump's goal is very fixed and people don't agree with his goals. People don't agree with the way he's taking American morals to a different direction and uh, American values to a different direction. And that is a source of a lot of unity and also a lot of rage. And those the the branching paths that somehow converge in the middle.
5: So yeah, there's a sense of this outrage that has kind of come from a Trump disruption that has kind of brought people together to kind of bandy and kind of recognize some of the issues that are going on and kind of fight back against them. It's mm-hmm. kind of like those kind of gold coins. That you're talking about. Exactly. There's those pockets of potential in some of these negatives that have been uh, put forth. I mean, it's interesting to consider that because maybe had we had somebody who still pulled the status quo, somebody who still ran as a typical politician, like Hillary Clinton's like that quintessential example of a very career politician, um, very much trained to kind of politically speak and advocate some of those typical policy points. Mm If someone had like that had become president, if we would still be seeing kind of those pockets of resistance, our kind of the senses of angst with uh, yeah. some of the system that's already yeah. in there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
6: exactly. That's the point. It's just that <laughs> if anyone was to bring to light the problems of American society and the problems that American values at its very core, it's Trump. And he did that job. And he's doing that job every single day. So we should be, like, criticizing him as much as you want. Like, he's a terrible president. I still think so. But look at what he's made us realize. And that's really important. Because now we can start actively making changes to what's wrong.
5: I think it's been a great conversation, kind of summing up uh, what kind of went on in your article. Do you have anything actually Do you want to add, uh, final words or anything on kind of your position, Trump and disruption, and those kind of uh, political ideas?
6: Well, yeah, I just wanted to kind of loop back to the point I, why I compared uh, disruptions, parallels with, from Trump and technology and biology and all the other fields. And it's primarily because disruptions a risky game, but disruption teaches you a lot. So we shouldn't be afraid of it because, as some wise man must have said sometime, that <laughs> without risk, there's no reward. <laughs> I'm not sure who said that, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's true. And I always uh, remind myself that every single day is, is that disruption can teach you a lot, regardless of what how you fail. If you're going to go and ask someone out, it's not always 50-50 roll. It could be a 20-80 roll. It could be a 10-90 roll. But you will never find out until you make the roll. So go for it, right? And then when you've failed or succeeded, criticize it, what criticize what just happened and then ask yourself why it happened. And there's your learning for the day.
5: That was Adavora. Vora. He's a third-year computer science student here at the University of Alberta. He wrote an article back in May called Trump's Disruption of American Politics, Not a Bad Thing. And uh, yeah, that was him discussing his article. Thanks so much for coming on, Addy.
6: Yeah, thanks. Nat. thanks for having me, Andrew. It was great talking to you.
5: That was The Gateway Presents Opinion Segment. My name is Andrew McQuinney, the opinion editor here at The Gateway. Thanks for listening.
0: That was The Gateway Presents' Opinion Segment. You're listening to CJSR FM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, sit back and enjoy our arts and culture section. mm
3: I can't control my thoughts Like you control my luck, it's in my head, and I can't get out.
7: Listening to maybe off of just gigged the EP by local pop punk band Our Abandon. Now I'm in the studio at CGSR with Nico Larson, who's in Our Abandon. Hey Nico, how are you doing? How are you feeling?
8: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me, Jonah.
7: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. As an artist in Edmonton, who's also a U of A student, can why don't we start by talking a bit about like the history of the band? um, You know how you balance the band with. School life, things like that. Whatever you want to start with.
8: Sure, um, yeah. So we, the project started just between uh, Nathaniel and I in high school as like a angsty high school uh, duo project, and um, it, it was it was planned to just kind of be that. Um, and then it evolved when I when I came back to Edmonton and started university and became a full uh, five piece band. And some of the guys are are in McEwen for school, McEwen for school, McEwen for music. And, um, so I'm the, I'm the odd one out in, uh, at U of A here, uh, but we still managed to to work it out and still practice once a week and and such. And, um, it, it, it just kind of all flowed together, um. Not not much else to say there. Yeah.
7: <laughs> For sure, no problem. Um so since it did start as more of a songwriting duo in high school and then you expanded to a bigger group, um, what was that process kind of like, you know, how has the sound of the band or the dynamic of the band evolved as it's grown into um, you know, more of like a live performance group?
8: Um, I think the writing is is oddly very similar. I think we, we still go through a similar process where there'll be one of us who comes up with really the core of the song and kind of, you know, you know, the melody and and really what this kind of the skeleton almost of what the song is. And then it's just more fleshed out with uh, with the group. So I don't think that that process has ever changed. But um, before it was always Nathaniel and I trying to cover all of those positions ourselves. And uh, I, I can only speak for myself here, maybe cover them much more in a mediocre manner than perhaps, uh, uh, having specialized musicians in their, in their respective instruments do. So I think that's, that's the cool part is going in and having five individual parts kind of come together as opposed to us just trying to fill in that empty space, you know, of where it, uh, of where it goes.
7: For sure. And now I have to ask this: um, one of your current band members is Kyle Anderson, your high school social studies teacher. Great guy, I love him. What is that like?
8: Uh, funny enough, he was the one who volunteered to play with us initially, and is probably the only reason why we're a full five-piece band, or why the project even <laughs> okay. continued, is because Nathaniel and I were were trying to play music again after high school, and then uh, we were. Not We hadn't played music for a while because I was living in Canmore, so we played a couple gigs, and they were they were bad, to put it lightly, and uh, we, were, we were almost embarrassed of, of playing again, and so we finally said, ah, you know what, we're not going to play again until we have a band, but we didn't know how to go about that until Kyle reached out and said, hey, I'll play drums for you, and then it was just <laughs> the musical explosion that was this Vic combo, uh, but no, play, it, it's really cool it's I don't view him that way at all anymore and none of us do you know now that it's been that long and we've become adult friends with him like it's not I I just it, it's hard for me to picture actually him as a teacher and like us being the student in that dynamic um it is still funny though whenever uh whenever we see old uh old high school friends
3: and <laughs> uh, <for laughs> they sure. ask about it for sure
7: yeah <laughs> right um And, you know, the the band being something that, um, you know, started in high school and has continued throughout, you know, how is it, how have you been able to manage it alongside changes in your life, right? You were away in a year for Canmore, and now you're doing political science at the U of A. Um, So how do you balance it with the rest of your life, and how do you see it continuing in the future?
8: Yeah, this this is something I was thinking a lot of, actually, in preparation for this interview, is I had to actually reflect on that, about, like, how... That ever happened because it was a very distinct choice. Once I started, it was clear. Sorry, let me let me regain my thoughts. It was very clear once I had started in my first year at U of A that I still needed to put aside time for it, and it needed it needed to be that dedicated time. It couldn't be something that i said oh well if i have the time this week after school or after th- my job after this then maybe i'll get around to playing music or practicing or writing something it was something that was very it it, ha- it had to i had to have a weekly commitment it needed to be all right every wednesday evening for 2 hours this is this is what we're doing and in my first year of university with the band when we were just starting out actually in that same fall in that beginning semester was a lifesaver absolute lifesaver because it was one of the only things really that brought balance to the craziness of starting university right and and uh uncovering all of all of that in itself so um yeah if anything it was that project was the the marker for me to realize this is what i need to do throughout the rest of my university career and yeah, the rest of my life like there needs to be that balance so
7: Awesome, awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, as you move through university um, and approach the end of your degree and, you know, your bandmates approach the end of their diplomas and Kyle Anderson keeps being a teacher somewhere, (laughs) um, like... Yeah, what is the future of the band? Because you just said that you intend for music to be part of you know, your future for the rest of your life. But um, what's the future of this particular project, do you think?
8: Well, it's funny enough, we, we recorded a second a, uh, second uh, EP uh, this over the course of this past year that none of it has been released yet. And we, we've been kind of sitting on these songs and there's been some hesitation this summer uh, about where we're going with thing, these with the with the project, and so we finally had a big conversation a few weeks ago, and just decided that we're going to have one last show in this fall, and then just part ways for a while and do different things. Uh, all of us kind of had this different feeling where we want to take our our personal time that we have to dedicate to music, and do other projects for a while, and it was a very natural thing it it seemed like everyone had a different outlet or a different project where we thought yeah i think this is what i need to do instead for a while so that's actually where we're going to go uh in the fall is we're going to have our our final show for you know indefinitely and we're all really excited for it it's kind of one of those things where we just kind of want to have with family friends and anyone who wants to come and and just kind of celebrate what this project has has been in for the past couple years um and i'm I'm really excited moving forward this year with with different music and stuff, and I know all of the other
7: guys are too, so I'm really excited to see where where we all end up and I'm sure we all are <laughs> <laughs> um, So you mentioned though that before you have your final wrap up concert, you are going to release a new EP um so could I get a a sneak preview on that new EP?
8: Potentially, yes. We haven't uh haven't quite decided if if we're going to go for the full release or not. Maybe oh, okay. maybe just a maybe just a teaser of one song off of it. We're not too sure that's still still in the works. But uh yeah, potentially
7: I do uh I'll, I'll let you know though. <laughs> okay, thank <laughs> you. And I'm sure all of my listeners at home will be interested to see what our band has in store. So before we end off, Nico, I'd like to talk a bit more about "Just Gigged" your EP specifically. Um, You know, I was listening to it this morning, and I'm really interested in the different sounds you have. In maybe it's a bit more of an upbeat sound to open us off, and "Looking Glass" and introspection it becomes well, becomes introspective. Um, And "Terms and Conditions" has a bit more of like a, a lively sound as well. Um, so, can you talk about you know the, the the variety of influences you have, the different sounds that you know the band is presenting, um, and also the, the the creative process behind that EP specifically?
8: Sure. Um, so that for just gig, we reworked actually introspection and in terms and conditions are two songs that Nate and I wrote in high school that we wrote when we were fifteen, and we just re-recorded and rewrote a little bit for. Uh, for the band purposes and kind of redid because we thought they were two songs that had potential to be fleshed out more and potential to be better songs than maybe how we recorded them when we were 16. Um, So I was really happy with how those turned out. Uh, The other ones, maybe, in Looking Glass were two new ones that we wrote in the the Kyle Anderson era, in the the full band era, uh, specifically for this EP. But that process was really great because we were recording it in Kyle's basement uh with you know like cans of paint holding up studio monitors and just we were just doing it ourselves and doing full weekends of not leaving the house to record it and recording every single sound ourselves with live instruments and that was a really great experience to have um and I learned a lot about how to record and how to write and and just how to make music essentially from nothing Uh, but in terms of the the influences, I think, yeah, you can definitely hear that that high school scene phase influence in some of it, uh, with the crunchy guitars and and Nate and I I's uh, always trying to get our vocals as high as possible and such. Um, for me specifically, I, I I do consider myself much more of a pop writer than than a rock writer, and and I'm always focused on creating catchy melodies and making sure that above all else that that that's what's still there is that you can still kind of sing it in the shower um but in terms yeah in terms of pop references it 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 could be oh man the john the john Mayer is always is always what we go for in terms of the pop guitar and such um uh off the top of my head i I can't think of anything else but definitely um that pop poppiness and kind of lightheartedness of it is definitely a big a big key
7: So in addition to your work with Our Abandon, you also do some um, solo songwriting, some solo recording. So can you talk a bit about that for us?
8: Sure. Uh, A lot of the solo stuff has just come out of um, me in my bedroom having an idea at 2 a.m. and recording it down and kind of fleshing out to see as far as I could go. So um, actually, you offering to do this interview was a great... A reminder that I should actually finish some of these things before school starts. Um, So, yeah, the solo stuff is, um, I suppose it's more popular, but maybe more laid back, too. It's definitely not that gritty kind of garage band sound um, of of all of us kind of making together. There's kind of a few samples on there as well. Um, But it definitely comes from a a more personal space, I think, for me, uh, because it is just me, you know, so I feel like I'm definitely putting more of my name on the lyrics and the song itself. And it's scary. It's much more scary than hiding kind of behind a, a band name and and having other musicians with you.
7: Mm-hmm. For sure. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, since our band is going on a hiatus, um, you are each pursuing some different musical projects. So you can can you tell me a bit about what you're going to pursue?
8: Yeah, so I am definitely want to pursue a few of my own songs that I've recorded over the past year, and I want to flesh those out and hopefully release a few of them over the course of the school year, but um, definitely am looking to just play music with other people as well and, and maybe reach out to a few people that I haven't before because I haven't maybe had the courage to, or maybe haven't had the opportunity, and so I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take this year to, to approach a few different people that I, I admire in Edmonton to play music and Hopefully, play a few shows still and and do maybe more of the the laid back coffee house sort of thing as opposed to trying to put on a full show myself um with with other bands
7: What do you think is like the most important part of music to you? Why do you care about music? Why do you care about the band and and why does it matter in the world
8: I think it's it's an odd thing when i when I'm studying. At school, something so completely, I guess, different in a different vein. And I almost have an identity crisis when I try and think of myself in relation to music now, because uh, even though you know politics and music are deeply intertwined with each other, it's still not in terms of how I'm studying, what I'm studying specifically, right, and what I'm doing at school. So when I th- I think of what, why music is important now, personally, it is it is to strike that balance of having something that's just so free and so. Um, just, I, I guess, unique and independent, and it, it, it's it's nothing. I guess that I mean, obviously, people judge music, but it's nothing that I feel judged for doing. You know, it's just something that it's just it's just there. Um, I, I think in terms of why music is important on a, on a more larger scale is exactly that, and just the human connection. Like, I any time where I'm I'm at a concert or a show. Even if it's in a a giant scale, I'm still so connected by having, you know, 30,000 people be singing the same words that I've connected to over the years um, that that artist actually wrote. And we're we're watching the artist perform them um, in real time. Or even with, you know, on a much more local scale meeting people who are doing the exact same thing that I am in their own way, there's there's something just human about it um, that doesn't require anything deeper than that, I suppose.
7: Thank you very much for talking to us, Nico.
8: It's been my pleasure.
7: Thank you very much. Now we're going to close off with one of Nico's solo songs, Can't Be With Me. Let's go.
3: i
0: was our arts and culture section and that's all our time for this episode of the gateway presents we'll see you again in another two weeks i'm victoria chu online editor of the gateway at the university of alberta and you're listening to the gateway presents on cjsr fm 88.5 edmonton our music is by disparition and can be found at disparition.info or disparition.bandcamp.com thank you so much for listening